listeners. This is Dan Kowalski, host of the Alaska Story Project. The motivation and inspiration for this project is to talk with authors, scientists, artists, historians, fisher poets, and a colorful cast of characters who are both knowledgeable and passionate about Alaska. Storytelling has always been key to how we connect as humans, piquing our curiosity and deepening our understanding. Our podcasts are unhurried, so we invite you to settle in and explore with us some of the richness that makes Alaska such a special place. Without further ado, let's begin. Welcome, listeners. My guest today is the author of The Circumference of Home. He's a longtime commercial fisherman. He's the founder of Inside Passages, an outfitter guide business of some 27 years operating near Petersburg with an emphasis on kayaking and mindfulness practice. So it's my pleasure to introduce Kurt Holting. It's a pleasure to be here. Kurt. Well, one of the things I like to do is to ask, how did you first come in contact with Alaska? I love hearing people's stories about how they came to Alaska. Uh, for me, it started pretty inauspiciously. I was standing in the student employment office at the University of Washington at the end of my freshman year in college looking for any kind of summer work. I'd never been to Alaska. I grew up in, in Puget Sound. I spent – I was already totally in love with uh, the Salish Sea. I'd spent my – all of my summers growing up in a small beach cottage on Liberty Bay near Paulsbow in Puget Sound. So my sense of connection to the inland sea, the inside passage, though I didn't even know what that was at that point, was really deep. And I remember um, that a particular job – possibility that was posted caught my eye, which was said something like hiring cannery workers for Petersburg, Alaska, apply at Fisherman's Terminal in Seattle. I had never been to Alaska. I didn't know anyone at that point who was in the fishing industry, but it it, it sort of caught my attention and I decided well, I'm going to go apply for that job. So I went down to Fisherman's Terminal, got myself hired uh, in this uh, salmon cannery in Petersburg. And next thing I knew, I was uh, on a plane to this place I knew nothing whatsoever about, this amazing archipelago they call Southeast Alaska. I actually will never forget coming down out of the clouds and getting my first glimpse of just the tapestry of islands, just endless tapestry of islands, um, sort of like Puget Sound on mega steroids. I remember feeling that. That was the scale of it. Um, How old were you, Kurt? I was 19 at that time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was hankering for some adventure. So I um, showed up in Petersburg, started, you know, preseason work in the cannery. I lasted less than a week because somebody tipped me off that there was a skipper down in the harbor, a guy named Adolf Matisson, one of the old-time Norwegian skippers uh, in Petersburg, who was looking for a deckhand on his purse saner, salmon saner. So I went down, and lo and behold, I got hired onto a saner. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, within a few days, we were headed out into what, to me, at the time, felt like kind of going back tens of thousands of years into the Pleistocene, just a place that was so vast and so wild and so unbelievably beautiful that I just could hardly believe what was happening. So I spent that first summer seining for salmon. Uh, turned out it was, uh, it was a lousy year. It was kind of the low ebb of the salmon runs uh, in Southeast at that time. But for me, I didn't care. <laughs> and Did you make enough money to get home? 
Well, I, I not only made enough money to get home, I certainly didn't, didn't get rich, but, but I made enough money to pay my way through my next year in college. I would have done it for nothing. So the fact that I could actually pay my tuition, room and board with what I made in the summer also really got my attention. At, you know, at that point, there was not much doubt about how I was going to be spending my next few summers. So you went back to University of Washington, and then uh, you would have been a junior then? or a... No, I went back as a sophomore. I had three years uh, of undergraduate, and then uh, as it played out, I, I went on, came back to Alaska in the summer. I went on to graduate school, actually divinity school, following my undergraduate years, and eventually became an ordained minister for a while, tried that out. But every summer through that whole process, I would go back to Alaska to go fishing, you know, always thinking, well, one more, one more year, one more time. And at a certain point, I realized that actually this was my life. You know, this was where the juice was for me, mm-hmm. being in Alaska, being out fishing, being in my body in that, you know, that full immersion experience of hard, hard work, long hours, sometimes really tough conditions and sometimes just really, you know, beautiful weather. But being out on the, the wild edge of Alaska, there wasn't anything that could even remotely compare uh, in my experience, even in Puget Sound. Well, it's a fairly athletic undertaking to uh, be on the back deck of a sane boat at times. And so I'm sure that your youth and athleticism that, uh, what, at UW, you were on the track team. Is that right? I was on the crew team. So Crew team. Yeah. yeah so I was, in, I was in pretty good shape. But I, I remember I didn't know, especially that first summer, I didn't know how to budget my energy. Mm. And by the end of the day, I was trying too hard and... By the end of the day, I would be so exhausted I could hardly even stand up. But eventually, I got the hang of it. Yeah, then back, you know, back and forth. Um, what has turned out to be a fifty-year-long migratory lifestyle between uh, Puget Sound and Southeast Alaska. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the uh, it's the same bioregion, so there's a fair amount of connectivity in terms of ecosystems experienced. Absolutely. With the, uh, you know, the difference being that by the time, by the 1970s, the salmon runs had been pretty much depleted in Puget Sound. And so the action was was all in Alaska. You know, what had been really the heart of Salmon Nation, Puget Sound, that, you know, Salish Sea, Columbia River, all of that, it its days were behind it. In southeast Alaska, Alaska was where it was happening. Yeah. You began your relationship with Alaska when you were 19, and so the decade of your 20s, which is always a dynamic decade, you you ended up in Petersburg full-time, or how did that go? I did. Um, by the time I had finished divinity school, spent a couple years as a campus minister at the University of Oregon, so, you know, um, and and during that time, I had also begun a Zen practice. So that was feeding in in an interesting way. And I had uh, met and married a girl from Petersburg, daughter of a halibut fisherman. My wife at the time, Diane, and I decided we were just going to move to Petersburg. Spent the decade of my 30s living and uh, fishing kind of full time out of Petersburg. That's where my kids were born. That was, uh, that was an amazing decade where I just completely gave myself over to the fishing life, branched out from salmon seining into a variety of other fisheries as people who live in Petersburg often do, uh, king crab fishing and uh, herring row gill netting were a couple of fisheries that I worked in and then and then I got into by the the early 80s I got into uh, long line for halibut in the Gulf of Alaska. Well let me ask you a little more about uh, that and the Petersburg fleet. 
<laughs> to this day, the Petersburg fleet has quite a reputation, and it depends upon one's perspective, the nature and the color of that <laughs> perspective. Back in uh, the 70s, early 80s, uh, going longlining, that was generally considered to be very hard work, but usually the jobs on the best boats were for true professionals. And is is that was that your experience going out on a longliner for halibut? Absolutely. I mean, the first uh, my first halibut trip out in the Gulf of Alaska was in 1980 on a boat called the Commander, uh, one of the highliners in Petersburg. And it was, at that point, uh, it was a 12-day trip. So this was toward the end of the period of time when there was a professional fleet and there was ample time to fish that time got compressed and compressed very quickly into what we started to call halibut derbies that you know might just be one or two days long a couple of times a year but at that point i was working on a boat with seasoned professionals and i was a complete greenhorn Seining and gill netting, there's not that much to learn. There's a ton to learn on a longliner. There's a, a whole bunch of skill sets that just take time to learn. So it was a process for me. Mm-hmm. And um, you were out in the ocean? Oh, yeah. We were out We were out in the ocean, and generally what that meant was uh, you, know, you, you go up to the uh, top of the Inside Passage in southeast Alaska around Cape Spencer and out from there into the Gulf of Alaska, and generally fishing the 100-fathom edge, which is usually about 60 miles offshore. So part of what that meant was that you were just out there, and if a storm, you know, the weather could be savage out there in the Gulf of Alaska, and there was no place to run when a storm hit except just to ride it out. So it was, uh, it could be really... uh, Really intense out there. Thirty-foot uh, seas was not uncommon. Sometimes all you could do was batten down the hatches and just idle into the swells for twenty-four or forty-eight hours just to ride it out, hmm. and then uh, get back to your fishing. Hmm. Well, you must have formed a relationship with the ocean and its character. The what the vast palette of uh, skies and sea and color and what about the waves and the swells did you notice well if uh, i may there's a short passage that i'd like to read from my book uh, circumference of home which is the book is primarily about experience in puget sound but uh in just a few places I wrote about my experience in Alaska, and and this passage actually includes reference to you, uh, Dan. So uh, I'm going to read this, this little reflection. As a fisherman, I'm tuned to the subtle varieties of wave action on the water. When halibut fishing in the Gulf of Alaska, for example, along the outer edge of the continental shelf, the direction of the wind has a big impact on the type of sea we have to contend with. A brisk southeasterly wind like the one out in Harrow Strait that I referred to earlier in the book breeds a short, steep wave uh, formation that slams continually into the boat, making it hard to keep balance. If a gale blows out of the southeast on the fishing grounds, the sharp swell can put us out of business in a hurry with most of our energy spent just staying on our feet. A westerly swell, on the other hand, generates long rolling swells born in the far reaches of the ocean, sometimes arriving days after the actual storm has ended. Such swells can be quite huge, yet in the long interval between peak and trough, they still pass through with an easy grace that transfers smoothly into the motion of the boat. Out on the ocean, even in the midst of a major squall, one can detect a deeper groundswell moving beneath the surface turbulence. Dan Kowalski, my longtime partner on the halibut grounds of Alaska, has a great name for this. He calls it long-wave modality. 
And, and I, I love that image. I've always loved that image. And, and I think, you know, maybe later in this conversation, uh, we can come back to that. I guess we could. <laughs> Long wave modality. Well, we have a mutual friend that has a saying that comes to mind right now. Mutual friend we've both fished and worked with uh, named Bruce, Bruce Tickell. <laughs> He's probably unaware of how famous he is for this saying, but his saying is, well, that brings up a lot. That does bring up a lot. <laughs> I recall that you've got a story about longlining on the classic Seattle halibut boat called the Lloyd. story. Actually, getting the crew chance on the Lloyd and back in 1982 was one of my first really big breaks in uh, getting into the more professional level of halibut fishing out in the Gulf of Alaska. At the time, I was 32 years old. I had just become a father six weeks before, so my, you know, I had a baby daughter. And uh, this was a, a fishing chance that was going to take me out all the way from uh, the Gulf of Alaska all the way to the Bering Sea and back for a whole month. And I remember being really torn about taking it and leaving, leaving my daughter and family at that time. But I really needed the money, and I needed the experience. So um, I caught a plane to uh, Anchorage and got myself out to the the town of Seward on the Kenai Peninsula to meet the boat. Uh, the Lloyd was a beautiful, classic 65-foot wood longliner based out of Seattle. And uh, as this was for a four-day halibut opening in the Gulf of Alaska. And what we would typically do before an opening like that is we would bait up as much, many thousands of halibut hooks as we possibly could, and then go set it all out, hope for the best, uh, in the halibut derby atmosphere of the fishery at that time. So um, I didn't know anyone on that crew except for the skipper. As it turned out, the crew, we, we didn't leave until midnight uh, the night before the opening. Before we left, the crew kind of hit the bars in Seward. Some of them had a little too much to drink, including the skipper. When we shoved off from the dock in Seward heading out at midnight, I went down into the forecastle uh, where the bunks were, up in the bow, kind of lower bow of the of the boat. Went to bed, get as much sleep as I possibly could. Before, you know, we probably would fish around the clock once we got going uh, with maybe no sleep at all. Resurrection Bay, where Seward is located on the Kenai Peninsula, it's, it's about three hours out to the end of Res Resurrection Bay before you enter the open ocean. And I remember waking up at the point that we were passing into the ocean because I became aware that the boat was lurching and swaying with the swells, went right back to sleep. The next thing I knew was some hours later, and it was like a stick of dynamite going off right in the forecastle that, you know, literally just the, the boat colliding full, you know, full on with some immovable object. So I was, uh, I just flew up the ladder from the forecastle into the pilot house and uh, was the first one up there. At that point, I raced out through the galley and out on deck it, it it was just first light, maybe 4.30 in the morning. Could just barely see. But what I saw just uh, sent absolute shudders 
every part of my body. The boat was lying hard against a sheer cliff uh, out on what turned out to be uh, the coast of Kenai Fjords National Park. And looking in both directions, up and down the coast, all I could see as far as, as far as the eye could see was sheer cliffs with no place where we had any chance of pulling ourselves out to any kind of safety. The boat itself was sitting kind of on a, the saddle of a pinnacle right up against the cliff, and with every swell that came in from the ocean crashing against the cliffs, it would lift the Lloyd big, heavy, you know, timbered uh, longliner would lift us up off the rocks and send us crashing, shuddering back down on the rocks. So it was clear that we were in serious, serious trouble. And I remember when it really hit me after assessing the situation, I, I just knew that this was it. I was going to die. We were about to die. And in my whole life, I think that is the only time I've had that experience. It was just that sort of sickening, primal dread that, you know, that comes with, I'm about to die. Mm -hmm. What happened after that is that we all did kind of go to work. I went up up uh, topside to launch the uh, life raft, and someone else got on the VHF radio and put out a distress call, a mayday call to the Coast Guard, giving our position. Others pulled out the survival suits, and we just... And then, and, and then someone else, uh, the skipper, was still kind of out of commission. How many people? Five. Five of us on the crew. And, and the, the fourth guy who, you know, these were all more experienced people than me and knew the boat. So one of them who really knew the boat was trying his best to get the boat into gear. And after a while, he was able to get us into reverse. And each time the, a swell would lift us off the, the pinnacle, the boat would back up maybe a couple of inches before it got crashed back down. And, and this went on for a while until amazingly, miraculously, we broke free from the rocks. And at that point, the boat was stuck in gear. We couldn't get it out of gear. But it backed away some short distance from immediate danger and began to kind of circle in reverse, make, you know, just make little circles in reverse. At that point, I went back down into the forecastle and engine room to assess what was going on there and found myself about thigh deep in water. Clearly, we were sinking. The engine was going to be swamped and uh, killed at any time. But, but it was also clear that we weren't just sinking like a stone. The water was coming in slowly enough that we did have a little bit of time to work with. So we were able to get into our survival suits and, you know, the Mayday call had, uh, you know, been heard and the Coast Guard was putting out its own calls for anyone in the vicinity of this vessel to assist in, you know, see if they could assist in the rescue. And there were two, uh, two large longliners in the far distance and I, I could tell they were longliners from the the bright sodium lights that they had in the rigging. At the point that the Lloyd started to really keel over and water came over the gunnel and into the galley when it really started to go down, at that point we got into the life raft, which was tied to the halibut gear anchors on the, the gunnel of the boat, and cut the tie line loose through the the knife out in the ocean so we wouldn't have any chance of puncturing the life raft and tried to push off. Um, turned out that the life raft also had uh, a sea anchor that the line to the to that sea anchor also was tangled up in the boat gear. And at that point the, the mast and rigging were really starting to come down onto us. You know, and 
all we could do was um, pile into the ocean and swim away as fast as we could. Because you had your survival suits on. We had our survival suits on. It's the first and only time I've ever had that experience. And, um, you know, thank God for survival suits because they really work. Uh, Once we were a safe distance from the boat, all we could do was just ride up and down with the swells and uh, wait for the rescue longliners to get there. And I remember at that point having such a profound wave of elation. Hmm. Just the kind of mirror image of the the dread I experienced when I was sure we were going to die, that my life was, I was going to be rescued. I wasn't going to die. I wasn't going to have to miss raising my beautiful little daughter. It was the marathon that pulled, pulled us out of the ocean one at a time, dropped a a line, heavy line with a, a loop tied that we put over our heads and under our arms, and then they just jerked us out of the water like fluorescent orange halibut. It was <laughs> and landing on deck. I I wonder how much you'd get per pound. I wonder. Looking back on that experience, you know, someone maybe smarter than I was might have concluded that uh, maybe that's enough of this fishing. Turned out that that wasn't the end of my fishing career. I I kept coming back. But uh, it was a time when I really really got to look at my life. Fresh lens and, and fresh sense of who I wanted to be and how I wanted to be connected to this life in Alaska. Would you say it was a wake up call? I would say it was a wake up call. That sort of brought back to the fore some of the aspects of my life that I thought I had left behind when I moved to Petersburg from the lower 48. Certainly at that point, I had no interest in being a clergyman in any conventional sense, but I still had that that deep call to a, a life of inquiry and a life of spiritual practice. At that point, it was manifesting more in my Zen practice. And I realized I had kind of just abandoned that part of myself. So how I eventually brought those pieces together is is an interesting story in itself. In that story, were there any principal mentors that uh, had a big impact on your life? Well, for sure, and I'd say I'm, you know, I've I've been blessed with wonderful mentors in my life. But at that point, the poet Gary Snyder was, by leaps and bounds, my model of the the kind of life I wanted to live. Well, let me ask you a little bit about Gary. I know Gary from my early time, and I guess I started tracking Gary. After I heard some of his work, read some of his work, and he was one of the original beat poets back right. in the San Francisco Renaissance, and very countercultural, very much uh, ahead of his time for an ecologically based philosophy. He was also quite a Rinzai Zen mm-hmm. practitioner. Was that all at play? Was that yeah. some of why you were attracted to? To Gary and his work? Absolutely. I was uh, came of age in the counterculture years, and uh, Snyder was legendary, especially people who'd grown up on the West Coast, the Northwest, like I had, who were also really drawn to the environmental movement, the ecological movement. And because Snyder found a way that was really unique, really new at the time, to bring together very disciplined spiritual practice. In his, in his case, um, he spent 10 years studying Rinzai Zen in a temple in Kyoto, Daitokuji. 
So he was one of the first Westerners to go all in and really get to the marrow of what that training was about. And then he was able to link that in some really powerful ways to this emerging environmental movement and uh, deep ecology movement that just was uh, electrifying. I think that would be the word to me and uh, many in you know our generation. He was, as you mentioned, a beat poet. Part of a big part of his fame came through his friendship with Jack Kerouac and Kerouac's novel, The Dharma Bums, which featured, you know, it really was about Kerouac's friendship with uh, Gary Snyder. And I read that. I read Snyder's poetry, and it just resonated with me. In some ways, my life in Alaska and come, you know, getting into the fishing industry, really going and um, starting to kind of experiment and explore with Zen practice on my own. But it was very much on my own up in Alaska. You know, pausing there, most of the Petersburg fleet are all Zen practitioners. <laughs> isn't that right? Uh, maybe at this point. Actually, in some, <laughs> actually in some ways, they really, they really were. I mean, <laughs> Say more. There's, there's a way – I mean, that was part of, a big part of what I loved about commercial fishing uh-huh. is that um, you had to show up. You know, you had to show up with your full attention. You had to really know what you were doing out there. You had to know the weather, the tides. You had to know the habits of the animals and the fish. You had to know how to get along in a very small floating platform for sometimes weeks at a time with people who might be at the far other end of the political spectrum than you were. There's actually a really natural, powerful link that I felt between what I understood Zen practice to be and what this life demanded. Right on. And then so that leads to another story. Can I tell tell another story about Gary's? Uh, So the way I actually met Snyder, and I think that would have been when you met him as well, Hmm. was um, I I heard that from somebody – in the Arts Council in Petersburg, that this guy, Gary Snyder, was planning a tour of remote bush communities in uh, mostly uh, the Arctic region of Alaska. Um, Snyder loved Alaska. He loved, you know, for him also, this was a a place that um, was of the scale that that he wanted to participate in. And I did something at that time. I was this would have been 1983, and uh, so I was 33. I did something uncharacteristic for me, which was I I decided to figure out where Gary could be contacted. I, I got a hold of his – somehow his mailing address, and I wrote him a letter from Petersburg. And I said, Mr. Snyder, I'm a big fan of yours. I love your work. I'm a fisherman in Petersburg. Is there any chance – that you could add Petersburg to your um, itinerary on this tour that you're going to be doing. And, you know, send it off kind of like one would send a message in a bottle out in the middle of the ocean, not expecting to hear anything back. And some weeks later, to my amazement, a letter comes in uh, from Gary saying, yes, I'd love to, I'd love to come to Petersburg. Um, You were there, as I recall, uh, at that time, I think. Um, but uh, so Snyder came and uh, stayed with, you know, I was privileged to have him, you know, stay with us. And he did, a, you know, some readings and workshops. But in the meantime, because of my own sort of um, very young emerging Zen practice and my interest in Zen, he took me under his wing uh, and encouraged me gave me some of the tools and materials I needed and invited me to come down to his little Zen community on San Juan Ridge in uh, the Sierra Nevadas of California uh, to do a retreat, which I started then to do each year. I would go down 
And so Snyder became really my first Zen teacher, and he was a really good Zen teacher. <laughs> I mean, he's known as a poet, but he he really was good, a good Zen teacher. That was a phenomenal stroke of luck for me. Kind of launched me on my own career, more serious career, as a practitioner of Zen. Yeah, thank you for that, Kurt. Oh, my goodness. I do have a a story and a strong memory of when Gary came down to Beecher Pass, where we have adjacent cabins. And this was when my son Duncan was, oh, I don't know, I'm going to guess six years old. And you, me, Gary, and Duncan were kind of circled up on the beach. Uh, you know, that's where we just met and we were considering the the tide and the bull kelp or whatnot. Who knows? Uh, but I do remember Duncan was swatting noceums and complaining about, oh my gosh, these noceums are so tough. And Gary laconically said, well, if you don't pay attention to them, they won't bother you. Boy, there it is. You know, Zen master, you know, there's the stick. Whack. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember Duncan kind of looking at uh, Gary somewhat puzzled, but clearly that lodged in uh, my memory and your memory. Yes, <laughs> so yes. That, was, that yeah. was emblematic. And that's much, much easier said than done. <laughs> oh, when, I guess when, so. <laughs> you know, I mean, when we are in circumstances that are uncomfortable for us, it's much easier to say that than actually do that. But Gary actually lived lives that way. He's still alive. He turns 90 this spring. Right on. Well, in the studio here, we have uh, many books. Near my hat is an old copy, an original copy of Gary Snyder's Turtle Island, for which he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. And under... Kurt's hand is The Practice of the Wild, essays by Gary Snyder. And this book, I think I've sometimes said is like my Bible, because I, for one, really respond to those few words, The Practice of the Wild, because certainly practice is a big part of a tradition that you, Kurt, and Gary and and I follow. And then the practice of the wild actually has so many layers to it that I've so, always held so many that layers. Yeah. in high esteem, high regard. Yeah, and um, the practice of the wild as a book, it came out in 1990, a few years after we were with Gary for that initial round in Petersburg. And... Uh, it's, it really has shaped a lot of my thinking as well as, as I know it has yours around what really constitutes a practice of place, really what goes into a place-based, practice-based, deeply rooted, deeply cognizant of all of the beings and creatures and animals and plants and conditions and ecologies and climates that make up our actual life wherever we find ourselves, right? Our sense of place. Our sense of place. I'd like to read just one very short excerpt from Practice of the Wild. So Gary says, and this is in response to the fact that things aren't going well out there. Climate change is happening. We can draw boundaries around certain areas and call them wilderness, but that doesn't protect them from the forces of changing climate. It's more complicated than that. So he says here, wilderness may temporarily dwindle, but wildness won't go away. A ghost wilderness hovers around the entire planet. The millions of tiny seeds of the original vegetation are hiding in the mud on the foot of an Arctic tern in the dry desert sands, or in the wind. These seeds are each uniquely adapted to a specific soil or circumstance, each with its own little form and fluff, ready to float, freeze, or be swallowed 
always preserving the germ. I love that distinction between we call wilderness, which in our culture has tended to connote a place that is untouched by humans, off limit. I mean that, which was actually rarely the case through through the long history of human presence on the planet. There's always been a human presence too, but in concert with, at a scale that you know, and and with a level of intimacy and awareness of the the place that maintained a balance, maintained an integrity that was really sustainable. And that's, of course, what we are losing today. And then another piece of that Snyder talks about and that you and I have both spent a fair amount of time thinking about, writing about, is the dimension of the wild that constitutes or or is represented by the human mind. I want to read something in the liner notes that you and I wrote some years back around your film project, Deep Presence. You know, what what is Deep Presence? And one of the things that we arrived at back in that conversation was the human, the human mind is wild habitat. And this is what we put in the liner notes. The activity of mind wells up out of what Gary Snyder has called our inner wilderness areas, quote-unquote. This is the place of the muse, the place of awe, terror, and sensual delight. This inner habitat of heart and mind can never be domesticated or exhausted. It will always remain essentially wild. And I think maybe we can return to this later in this conversation, but to me, there's tremendous uh, comfort and solace in that, mm-hmm. you know, in both in the what Snyder refers to as wildness that won't go away, and also in terms of the uh, the interaction between human consciousness, human awareness, human perception, and our environment around us, and how we're shaped by it, often unconsciously. And uh, less and less explicitly as we become more and more urbanized. You know, I think our experience in Alaska over all of these now decades and what draws us back is, uh, speaking for myself, is this sense that you can't be in the Alaskan environment without being intimate with it. It doesn't make sense. It's not safe. there's an interplay and a kind of inter interpenetration of what's around us and who we are. That's a very much uh, along the lines of how Gary would describe it. I think uh, I first heard that word interpenetration mm-hmm. uh, from Gary. Yes, indeed. Yes. Well, Alaska begs it, requires it, <laughs> demands it, and. As our mutual good friend Holly Hughes says, if if you come up short in that request for full engagement with the country mm-hmm. in Alaska, it can have dire consequences. Yeah, yeah, you can pay big time in a hurry, and and the appropriate sense of vulnerability is built into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can come to think of ourselves as invulnerable in the completely manufactured environments that we live within and the uh, tools of connectivity that we lose ourselves inside of can give a uh, very false impression of that we control a lot more than we actually do control. Mm-hmm. And Alaska is there to kind of whack us from time to time but also to inspire, just to inspire with that deep awe. Well said. And uh, one, this comes to mind, and you and I have experienced this so many times. When, we're, when I was uh, crewing for you for those many years, and especially in the 90s, early uh, 2000s, out on the halibut grounds on your boat, Sue Ann, you're out there all day long, the engines, you know, the diesel is grinding away. The um, 
the hydraulics are going on and off. The girdy is running. You're doing something all day. There is no time when you're not engaged in making this thing happen as efficiently as possible to catch as many fish as possible. And that becomes its own kind of obsessive. That's what we do as fishermen. Single focus. Single focus. And there's a beauty in that. But what I'm driving at is, you know, those moments where at the end of a long, long day, you finally pick up the last of your gear and head for the anchorage, exhausted, and you drop the hook in some little bay, some little protected cove, and shut down the diesel engines. (laughs) And usually, if not audibly, in your mind, sing, Alleluia. Alleluia. And so, I mean, what I've experienced there, and I know you have as well, is that it's it's sort of like the silence slams in on you. I mean, literally, it's like it's like some kind of – it's like this – all of this noise and all of the engine sounds. And it's like that that you think is all there is after a while because that's all you – you know, that, that something so much bigger and so much more spacious and so much more alluring kind of just slams in on you the scale of the silence, the scale of the um, – the living soundscape, the breathing of humpback whales, the, yeah. you know, there they are. just can smell, you can smell the, the spruce forest. You can hear the sounds of the water against the hull of the boat. And you can hear yourself think again. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so, and I, and I, I mention that because... That really sort of spurred me at a certain point to want to spend more time out in it in silence. Well, that's a that's it's an amazing segue into Inside Passages as the name of your outfit and uh, a string of years very fruitful incredible experiences out in Tebenkoff Bay. Yes. Actually, it started in Rocky Pass, and I have to, you know, I have to tip my hat to you, Dan, because the idea for Inside Passages came from you, as you will recall. And you know, well, let me interject that, yeah, maybe, but uh, as I remember it, we were we were across the hatch. Uh, baiting up halibut gear with the diesel off, listening yeah. to some of the sounds, but still with a single focus, very much immersed in southeast Alaska. In Farragut Bay. In Farragut Bay. <laughs> and I would say that the idea just emerged. It came up out of the hold and up onto the hatch, and it, there it was between there us. There it was between us, and you and the uh, uh, you were uh, spending your summer seasons as a Dungeness crab fisherman, in those days uh, in this place called Rocky Pass, which is a, an amazing, a very wild uh, and, for, for a mariner, a perilous channel between Kupernoff Island and Kuyu Island. And I remember you saying, you know, Kurt, you should, you should lead kayak trips in Rocky Pass. Uh, and it was. Can we still do that? Oh boy! And, and it was kind of like a gong going off, uh, and uh, yeah, that's what I did. Starting that summer, I think, which was in 1994, I talked a bunch of my friends and a few colleagues into coming up and doing this crazy thing. And, and you know, at that point, I was also quite serious about my Zen practice and my meditation practice. Uh, it was pretty fully a part of my experience as a fisherman, carpenter, and just person, uh, you know, climber. It was it was kind of a major thread running through the different things I was doing and wanting to do. I think there were 10 people, and I rented some kayaks, and we uh, we got set up a camp at the South end of Rocky Pass, you knew that territory. You weren't on, in that group, but you were fishing. I remember, you know, seeing you several times uh, in the, on the Suan as we were going through. But 
you kind of got me oriented. And we did it. We did a week-long kayaking trip through Rocky Pass that included some sort of makeshift Zen meditation and some just uh, agreements to spend some time, some part of each day, quietly, just availing ourselves to the silence, as well as in great conversation. Mm. That was 27 years ago, and I have been doing that ever since. You know, I moved out, as you mentioned, to an even wilder place called Temenkoff Bay Wilderness and worked out there for a number of years. Absolutely. As a mindfulness practice, the really potent context in which to explore explore those the, the practice of deep listening. And that involves listening to the place, listening to oh, what Snyder called our own inner wilderness areas, and the interaction between the two and what comes up, both the pleasure and delight that can come up and the deep dark, difficult stuff that comes up out of our human... <laughs> the mire and the muck, the minus tide smells. The minus tide smells, that's right. So, you know, that that has been my great privilege over the last 27 years to be the host of many dozens of, of these retreats and has brought me into contact with opportunities to work with some of my most important teachers and mentors, mm -hmm. as well as other notable colleagues. And, you know, so, so immeasurably has enriched my own life mm -hmm. as well. Kurt, talk, if you might, about the mixture, the synergy between quiet, listening, in particular, time on the water in kayaks, and then a sitting practice. How do those all kind of mix together, and what uh, what's the outcome? What's the result? Well, those are great questions. There's no predictable outcome. It's uh, it's an act of. It's a very counterintuitive act in our culture to shut up and listen. Sometimes we might do that when we're by ourselves, but rarely in the company of others. Just idle chatter dominates and continual distraction and media distraction and anything to keep us from having to face just ourselves alone in the silence. Mm -hmm. What I have found to be especially evocative and fruitful in doing this kind of retreat in a really wild place in uh, southeast Alaska is that the aliveness, the profound aliveness of the ecosystems we're in mirrors a deeper and richer aliveness within ourselves. Hmm. I mean, the salmon are pouring in, the hump, you know, the herring are there in masses, the humpback whales are, are you know, especially in Tebenkoff Bay, we would be doing our sitting meditation in, in campsites with humpback whales feeding right along the edge of the kelp, right off of us. Big energy, big energy. Big breathing. Big breathing. <laughs> you know, we were breathing with the whales, basically. And, and, and we were always in earshot, especially in Tebenkoff, which is a particularly rich Salmon spawning, there are several very productive salmon streams in Tebenkoff Bay. And so we were in earshot of, during the salmon run, of salmon jumping all the time, jumping along the campsites, jumping along the shore, pouring in. It takes some days, but when you allow the the kind of nervous energy that builds up in our bodies, in our normal everyday life, if, if, if we allow that to settle and there's some sort of agreement to spend certain parts of each day practicing together, mm -hmm. the, my experience, and I think the experience of an awful lot of people who've come on these trips, is that something profound starts to open up 
within our own inner wilderness areas. Mm -hmm. You cannot get there from here by discursive thought or by intellect. You just, you know, something else happens when we let go of that striving, when we allow ourselves to just be uh, and help each other hold that intention Mm -hmm. over a period of days that something really starts to let go and open and we can begin to actually be present fully in a a more deeply relaxed way Mm -hmm. that just simply sees and feels and hears a lot more than we normally are able to avail ourselves to. Mm -hmm. If you will, ponder how some of that experience and practice might translate into life, say, here in Puget Sound or life back east or life in other latitudes. Uh, any thoughts along those lines? Oh, oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you know, many people who come on my trips and retreats in Alaska have never meditated, have never kayaked. In some cases, they've never experienced that scale of terrain and that scale of uh, stillness and silence. And it can be very unsettling, actually. But as we as we sort of sink into that and fall into some alignment with that and help each other do that and support each other, you know, through what might be the some of the difficult parts, w- the way I think about it is that it opens up a, a sense of deep time, hmm. a, a sense of deep ancestry, you know, that, oh, this is what all of my ancestors experienced all of the time. And that it comes with a great deal of both responsibility to know intimately where we are, because mm-hmm. you don't survive otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no Trader Joe's down the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get everything you need from where you are, food, medicine, building materials, clothing, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. That this is our deep common humanity happening in a certain way. We taste it, taste it there. And the, many people, and I experience this myself when I come back to the lower 48, it can be jarring, increasingly so. But there's also an experience now that you're carrying inside you mm-hmm. that you have – it's a reference point that you didn't have before. And as a reference point, it may get tattered and tarnished, but it doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. You can access it. You, you know, there's a way. In, and, and so it also, in my experience, helps us re-inhabit where it is that we actually live with – a greater degree of curiosity and attentiveness to not just what street do I live on and and what's the nearest uh, shopping mall and what's the quickest way to drive from here to there, but what's the habitat? What's the underlying? What's the the watershed I live in? What animals are still here? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what are the trees and plants? How does wildness, as Snyder talked about it, still infuse all places, including where I actually live. Well said. And such experience as maybe the best way to incorporate such things, but also such thoughts. These kinds of perspectives, these kinds of practices can be played out, implemented wherever one lives. And whatever the Circumstances of culture or politics or weather might be. These kinds of awarenesses, attentiveness can be real allies and may factor into one's skill set for resilience in turbulent times. Yeah, one might even say um, that this is survival equipment. Yeah ability our capacity to to be to be present to the actual circumstances of our lives 
there's a Zen saying, never forget the thousand-year view. Mm. Our capacity to access, coming back to your phrase, long-wave modality, mm. that capacity to feel the long wave beneath the short wave <laughs> clatter. Clatter, the short wave clatter that is really all we experience if we're not careful. We're not careful. Um, that this long wave modality, this thousand-year view is a, a deeply orienting and stabilizing perspective. And the way it's accessed is through the present moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is the, uh, and I'll say more about that, this is the paradox that when we are fully present, meaning that our minds and our bodies are in the same place at the same time, <laughs> You Radical know, thought. Which is, you know, actually an extraordinarily rare experience. You know, our minds are anywhere but where our bodies are most of the time. Lost in, you know, the past, which usually uh, has to do with uh, a regret and – or lost in the future, which usually has to do with anxiety and worry. The present moment when we're fully present and there is a, there is a serious art – and practice involved in being able to come back again and again. When you, when we're actually present, we're not wanting to be somewhere else. We're not obsessing about what we don't have. Uh, we're not obsessing about getting rid of the things we don't want to have. We are just simply available to our experience in a very immediate, direct, and I think uh, many people would say relaxed and accepting mm-hmm. frame of heart and mind. Mm-hmm. Even when our circumstances are difficult in the present moment, mm-hmm. there is a kind of capacity to be to be with it in an open-hearted, curious way mm-hmm. that then transforms the difficulty into something manageable. And even something really quite instructive and valuable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Once again, Kurt, well said. I'm curious about a poem, and it harks back to where we began with a uh, relationship, a true fascination with place. And so I'm looking at something entitled A Few Helpful Hints. For the standing people, you and I would be standing people, from the salmon people. Uh, Yeah, that might be a good place to kind of bring this uh, full circle. This is something I wrote a few years back at a gathering called the Blue River Writers Gathering uh, in the Mackenzie River of Oregon. Mm. Uh, All peoples on the coast from San Francisco Bay to Hokkaido, had a first salmon ceremony. Orientation was salmon, and it was a reciprocal relationship. And literally, you know, in the native native mind, there was a kind of very permeable uh, membrane between being in a human life and being in uh, an animal's life that, that we move back and forth. So literally, the salmon were people. And vice versa. And vice versa, occupying a different niche in the ecosystem upon whom humans depended completely Mm -hmm. for their food and deep sense of respect and reciprocity. So that's kind of, you know, that was what was in my mind when I wrote this. A few helpful hints for the standing people from the salmon people. One, show off your beauty. Know how beautiful you are. Leap, surge, mingle, dance. Two, have grand adventures. Cross the North Pacific all the way to Kamchatka and Hokkaido. Move under your own power. Navigate by the stars. Three, be intimate with the tides and currents. Play the edges constantly. Find your joy there. Four, 
hang out with charismatic megafauna, congregate with humpback whales and bald eagles and sea lions and humans among the tide rips and upwellings and where the herring come to spawn. Five, know where you are going and let nothing stop you. Remember in your bones the exact location of the stream where you were born. Know where you are always in relation to that stream. Six, turn for home when your body tells you it's time. Trust that you will find the way and don't be daunted by any distance. Seven, give yourself away to the creatures who need you, who have waited expectantly for your return, the swimming people, the flying people, and the standing people whose lives are bound so closely to yours. Eight, when at last you reach the home stream, head straight into the current and start climbing. Climb the rapids, climb the waterfalls, climb the very mountains. Bend yourself to that final act of love that will keep it all going. Nine, let go of any thought of preserving your beauty now. <laughs> Let your body morph, sprout humps and fangs and rainbow colors. And in that final act of union, pour yourself out with your lover into the stream that will be your progeny. Ten, let it all go now. Feed the animals with your spent body. Stray far into the ancient forest as you swim down their bodies and back into the soil. Become the very flesh of the forest itself. Climb to the top of the trees. <laughs> Bravo and right on. I find it inspiring. Well said. A reminder. Just the right thing for right now. Kurt, awesome. A question uh, for those listeners out there that want to find out more about your work, Inside Passages, where would you direct them? My website is www.insidepassages.com. That's how you can find out more about my work, a little more about what, what I do, what we do. And um, you know, this has really been fun to to talk about stories and uh, experiences that we've shared together in over, gosh, the last 40 years or so. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, such a pleasure and big gratitude for coming down here, taking this time, exploring this territory together and back at you. It's, uh, it enriches my life. And many others, because these things tend to ripple out. And thank you to the listeners. For those of you that have found this compelling, please talk it up, uh, like it, do those modern things that uh, characterize how things propagate during these times. And Kurt, thank you. Thank you, Dan. This has really been fun. Mm -hmm. 